don't think of the devil as a cute red cartoon character with two horns and a tail and a staff. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's dangerous for your soul to think of him like that. He is out to devour you. And he'll use scripture if that would work. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part two of Tested and Triumphant from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor Paul's text for today's message is the Gospel of Luke, chapter four. If you're like most people, you love a good spy thriller, detective, or war drama. It could be a movie, a book, or TV series. And what do they all have in common? There's the good guy and the enemy. What's the enemy's first goal? Any guesses? It's quite simple if you've seen enough of these shows. The first goal of the enemy is to make you think he's not your enemy. In this second part of our series, Pastor Paul Twist continues to show how we can obey, trust, and worship Jesus as he's the only one who can faithfully identify and defeat the enemy of our souls. Let's continue with Tested and Triumphant, part two. The devil took him to the holy city, that is Jerusalem, He set him high up on the temple, and he says again, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And then Satan quotes from Psalm 91. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan is undoubtedly upping his game at this point. The first test bore no fruit for him, so Satan quotes scripture so as to entice Jesus and probe further what's in his heart. You see how deceitful the enemy can be. Don't think of the devil as a cute red cartoon character with two horns and a tail and a staff. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's dangerous for your soul to think of him like that. He is out to devour you. And he'll use scripture if that would work. So he quotes scripture at Jesus, a wonderful psalm full of promises issued by God toward the one that trusts him. Is there anyone on planet earth to whom these promises more apply than Jesus? To the one who trusts me, these promises are true. Satan, knowing that, uses this scripture as part of the test, and Jesus responds with scripture, quoting now from Deuteronomy chapter 6, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You have to understand what Jesus is not doing here is pitting scripture against scripture. This is something we can often do. Without even realizing it, we're We're confronted with a verse and our response, our our way of reconciling a perceived tension in the verse is to say, yes, but over here it says this. And therefore the issue has been dealt with. And unknowingly what we've done is we've elevated one scripture above another. 
That's not the way the Bible works. This book is inspired from beginning to end. This book is equally authoritative from beginning to end. And so what Jesus is actually doing in quoting Deuteronomy 6 is exposing Satan's false use of Psalm 91. Satan is a false teacher at this moment, as he always is. He's quoting Psalm 91 incorrectly. Jesus knows it, and so he quotes again from the book of Deuteronomy so as to expose the error. The nature of the test is this. Not, why don't you just step aside from God's will for one moment, That was the first test. He's not saying that, but he's saying, here's God's will in his word. It's been written. You know it. Here is God's will. Why don't you behave in such a way so as to force God to act? God has given you these promises. Why don't you now force him to come good on those promises? Or to put it another way, what Satan is asking Jesus is why don't you put God in a box? Why don't you establish yourself above your Father in heaven? Act in such a way that now God has to respond. He's bound to respond in this way. Failing to recognize that God is not bound by anyone, anything, save his own character, That as God gives such rich promises in Scripture, it is entirely his prerogative how and when he will come good on such promises. You know God may well allow Christians to see danger, to face danger, and to die as a result. And we do not say in response, he failed us because his word says that he'll protect his holy ones. We intuitively know as Christians it is up to God when and how he exercises his promises. And so what Satan is saying is if you are the son of God, will you obey regardless of God's purposes in your life? Are you the type of son who only obeys when it suits him? That's the nature of this second test. Will you obey God joyfully, steadfastly when it goes your way? And only then. Or will you obey God? No matter what plans he has for your earthly life. That is what's at stake here in this second test. And already... Your mind is is racing ahead to, to see the implications of Jesus passing this test. You see, he will hear these words again in his life. Twice now, Satan has said, if you are the son of God on the cross, at the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 27, the mockers will cry out to him, if you are the son of God, Bring yourself down. That is a satanic cry at the point of Jesus' death. They are representing the enemy at that moment with the very same words that he brought to Jesus in the wilderness. This is not how you wanted it to pan out. 
This doesn't look very glorious. This is not a very good end to your life. If you're the son of God, come down. They're not asking if Jesus had the power to do so. Of course he did. Jesus, on the point of his crucifixion, is still sustaining the universe by the word of his power. Every single moment of his life, including his death on the cross, Jesus is the upholder of all things. If he wanted to come down off the cross, he could so easily have done so in an instant. But Jesus chooses to trust in the purposes of his heavenly father. He is an obedient son and he is a son who trusts. He trusts even to the point of death on the cross. And so you see that the moral glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is the means to your salvation. You see, the moral glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is what makes effective his crucified glory. If his moral glory had not been sustained his whole earthly life, his crucified glory would mean nothing. It counts for nothing that this man died on a cross if he had not first obeyed and trusted his father perfectly. Every second of every day, his ministry was one that was grounded in trust in his father. And if for one moment that trust deviated, now he is not a perfect sacrifice for your sin. But because his moral glory was sustained, tested here at the start of his ministry, sustained thereafter, because his moral glory was sustained, now his crucified glory is saving for you. So if you have come this morning and never even pondered such realities as the moral glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You maybe haven't even considered his crucified glory, but somehow, somewhere along the way, you have bought into another kind of Jesus. Then you do not have salvation in his name. Trusting in another kind of Jesus is not trusting in him at all. You may become this morning and you acknowledge him to be a good teacher who did many good things and accepting that and at the same time bringing something to the table of your own doing that you think is somehow valuable. If that's the Christ you've trusted in, you have no salvation in him. The only salvation that is to be found in Jesus is one that surrenders everything and says, I have nothing to offer you. But I see in your life your moral glory evidenced most plainly during this episode, but sustained throughout his life. If you see that glory with eyes of faith this morning and you understand it as a necessary precursor to his crucified glory, then your sins are completely forgiven. Your sins have been utterly dealt with at the cross of Christ. God, who is the God of Jesus, is now also your God. He is your Father in heaven. 
And you can rejoice that you have been reconciled to him because his son was one that trusted his heavenly father. The third and final test is one that probes whether this son worships his father. Is this son one who obeys his father? Is he one who trusts his father? Is he a son of God that will worship his father? The devil took him to a very high mountain. There is throughout this episode an increasing importance to the tests. Each test, the stakes get higher. And that increasing weight of significance is marked out by an increasing altitude. We start in the wilderness, in the low place. The devil then takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple. And the very last test is staged on this very high mountain. The stakes keep increasing. And Satan says to him, look at all the kingdoms of the world. Look at all the glories of all the kingdoms of the world. I, as the prince of the power of the world, it's what we learn of the enemy in the book of Ephesians and elsewhere. God in his wisdom has given him reign over this earth. And Satan in that role says, I give you all of this glory and authority if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus responds, be gone. Because Deuteronomy chapter 26, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And with that, the devil left him and the angels came and ministered to Christ. The test here is one where Satan knows Christ's appointed end. Satan knows an awful lot, and he knows that one day Jesus will reign over all things. Satan knows that the appointed end for the Son of God is to rule as king over the entire universe. One day Christ will return, he'll establish his kingdom on earth, and then after a thousand years he'll usher in the new heavens and the new earth, and he'll be shown as the king of every square inch of this universe. Satan knows that. And so the test is one wherein he offers him that end. Here's your appointed end. And you can have it now, right now, this day, this appointed end of yours can be given to you. The way to get there, says Satan, is not by the cross, not through suffering, not through hardship, not through humility. You can have that appointed end now by worshiping me by falling down in worship to me. It's the right end and the wrong means. And that's an understatement. If Jesus had bought into this test, if he had said, I'll give you my worship, you give me my appointed end, and then the cross, the need for my suffering is done away with, no passion narrative would ever have been written. If Jesus had bought into it, the entirety of God's plan is forsaken. The gospel message is done away with. You have no salvation in Christ this morning if Jesus had bought into this plan. And more to the point, 
reigning over this universe would be a follower of Satan. You can ponder the hypotheticals all day, and invariably as you do so, you might think to yourself, but he didn't do that, and it's almost pointless to think through the possibility that he might have done otherwise. Why do we even need to think about the fact that Jesus could have potentially worshipped Satan at this moment? And the answer is because lesser men along the way will keep trying to persuade Jesus to choose a different path. When Jesus says, be gone, Satan, away with me, Satan, it is the same verb that he uses when he speaks to Peter. And he says, get behind me, Satan. In that moment, Peter is functioning as a representative of the enemy. And what is so tragic is that Peter's weakest, weakest moment comes immediately after the high point of his ministry where he makes a confession, you're the son of God. Halfway through the gospel at Matthew 16, all this time the disciples have been trying to figure out who is this man? And at that point, Peter speaks as a representative for the group And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are Christ, the son of the living God. It is the high point in Peter's ministry. And Jesus says, because of this confession, the church will be established on you. You'll be forever remembered for making that confession. And then Jesus switches gears. Now that you've recognized who I am, I need to start teaching about what I need to do as the Son of God. Here's the nature of my ministry, and he begins to teach them about his need to suffer and to die for sinners. And Peter says, it doesn't have to be like this. He represents Satan. Satan says, it doesn't have to be like this. You can worship me and it can all be done. And Peter says exactly the same thing. You can choose a different path. And Christ says, get behind me, Satan. And so you see the text is not, it is not primarily given to us in our Bibles so as to provide for us a mechanism, a blueprint for understanding how we are to fight against sin in our lives. Pastorally, it's entirely true. That God's word is your best friend in fighting against sin. Memorize it. Take the memorization of scripture seriously. It ought to be a discipline in your life because it is God's appointed means by which you might walk out a path of obedience and trust and worship. All of those things are true. It's not the point of this text. The point of this text is that we would find in Christ a steadfast saviour, one who is worthy of our allegiance. We find in Christ one who trusted God, who obeyed God and who worshipped him. And because of that, he is our saviour. Our sins are forgiven because of these realities in Jesus's ministry. And so ever more as we ponder his testing in the wilderness, 
face to face with Satan after 40 days of not eating a single thing. He refused to step away from the will of God. He refused to trust in something else. He refused to allow his worship to be directed anywhere other than wholeheartedly towards the Father. You can only respond in worship of him, in praise to him, in glorifying him, and by saying, my whole life is surrendered to you. Whatever the cost, because there are so many implications that flow out of the text, you understand Jesus knows his appointed end will be accomplished by way of the cross. Jesus knows that. And as he starts to teach Peter about his suffering, as Peter resists it and Jesus rebukes him, Jesus has more to say. He says, Peter, not only do I need to go to the cross and suffer, but you need to pick up your cross also. If you would be a disciple of mine, you need to follow in my footsteps. You need to get on board with this mission. And as you see the moral glory of Christ, there is an appeal for your discipleship, for your following after him, to never be ashamed of the Lord Jesus or of his gospel, to understand the path that you choose when you give your allegiance to him, but to proclaim his glory in a steadfast manner until the day that he comes in his glorious return to claim those that belong to him. And he will render us in that day perfect worshippers, those who obey perfectly like he did, and who trust perfectly like he did, and who worship perfectly forever and ever because he is our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... Jesus is testing in the wilderness. We are grateful that he was tested and yet triumphant. We praise you that he is presented to us as one who obeys your will without error, without fault, without deviation. He trusts you completely and he worships you perfectly. And in Christ's moral glory, we find our salvation. His moral glory is what leads him to the cross. His crucified glory is what pays for our sins. We praise you for the Son of God who was tested and triumphant. And we ask as ever that you would enlarge our hearts in love for him, quicken our steps in obedience to him, that he would be praised. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Back in the second century, there was a follower of Jesus named Polycarp. The Roman Empire, hating Christianity, threatened Polycarp with death if he didn't renounce his faith, to which Polycarp gave his famous reply, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? Surely we've all done wrong to Jesus, yet He remains faithful and triumphant. Are you ready to fully obey, trust, and worship the one, the only one who has defeated death, Jesus Christ? 
If you'd like to learn more about following the one who has given us victory over sin and death, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. Select broadcast, and there you'll discover a free audio library with an abundance of teaching to help you. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If this program has a positive impact on your relationship with Jesus, will you make a financial gift? You'll be part of what God is doing through this outreach ministry to reach thousands of souls with the good news of Jesus. On the homepage, timelesstruthtoday.org, simply select Donate to make your gift of any size. Join us tomorrow as we begin a new series, A Prayer to Live By. I'm Matt Williams. Hope you can join us then. And thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.